Hey friends, Nina here. Guess what? It's spooky season. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then you need to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklores, and hauntings of the American South. Not only is Southern Gothic a beautifully made podcast, it's hosted by my good friend, Brandon. With over a hundred episodes to dive into, Southern Gothic explores those crazy, unbelievable tales that your Mima used to scare the pants off you with when you were a kid. But the podcast doesn't stop there. You'll actually journey deeper into the history of these Southern tales to find out the truth behind the lore. With episodes ranging from topics like the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, as well as deep dives into local lore from some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine, there's an episode for everyone. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned spooky Southern storytelling, with a commitment to quality historical research, be sure to check out Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is available on your favorite podcatcher. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already On a spring day in early May 2015, a man out walking in rural Wisconsin spotted something bright, glinting in the sunlight. He went to investigate and assumed when he saw what had glinted, a sun-bleached bone, he was looking at the remains of a deer. As he got closer, he realized the proportions were off, and he began to rethink his original theory. As he scanned up, he saw a skull, unmistakably human and realized what he was looking at. Little did he know that his discovery would help to bring closure to a missing persons case that had been frustrating investigators for two and a half years, one that needed the missing piece of the puzzle, the body, before the killer could be brought to justice. Come with me to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as we look at the last days of Kelly Dwyer's life and the investigation that followed. Elizabeth Dwyer was born September 27, 1986, in Chicago, Illinois. Not much is known about Kelly's early life, but we do know that she was incredibly close with her parents. In 2004, she graduated from Stevenson High School in Lincolnshire, Illinois. During her time there, she played tennis and was in the newspaper and yearbook clubs. After high school, Kelly moved to Milwaukee for college. While there, she fell in love with yoga. She gained employment at Lululemon, a stable job that was adjacent to her new interest as she eventually taught yoga and nannied on the side to make some extra money. Again, not much is known about Kelly's life post-college, and listeners were going to jump ahead a few years to late 2012 or early 2013. The dates are unclear, 
when Kelly started a relationship with a man named Chris Zoko. Chris was 11 years older than Kelly, born in 1975. He attended high school in Hartford, Connecticut, and went to Boston University, graduating with a degree in international business. His true love, however, was sports, and he was offered a job working in IT for the New York Yankees. After being fired from that job with the Yankees, he ended up in Milwaukee working for TRC Global, a job he no doubt got because his mother was the executive vice president and chief operating officer at TRC. The job as the head of IT was mostly remote and afforded him a salary big enough to get an Audi and an apartment at Park Lafayette Towers, a luxury high-rise. Once Chris moved to Milwaukee, he started dating a woman we will call Beth. Their relationship was serious enough that the pair discussed getting married during their three and a half years of seeing each other. However, much to Beth's eventual surprise, they were not exclusive, and Chris was seeing other women. One of those women was Kelly Dwyer. Just as Beth didn't know about Kelly, the reverse was also true. However, it is reported that Kelly did know the relationship with Chris was not exclusive, and she did date other men. However, Chris was the person she saw most often and most seriously, and her friends believed that Kelly was hoping that the relationship would evolve to something more. After Kelly started seeing Chris, her friends became concerned. They noted bruising to Kelly's neck and wrists after she had seen Chris. Kelly confided in some of her best friends that her sexual relationship with Chris involved bondage, and those encounters explained the bruising they saw. Her friends concluded that Kelly's desire to enter an exclusive and more committed relationship with Chris led her to engage in more dangerous sexual practices in order to make Chris like her more. On October 12, 2013, Kelly was scheduled to work at Lululemon. Kelly was a diligent and dedicated employee. She showed up on time and did not miss shifts with no explanation. So when she was a no-show, her supervisor and other co-workers were immediately concerned. Their concern only grew when they called Kelly's cell phone and it went straight to voicemail. Kelly's phone was rarely, if ever, turned off. The supervisor and co-workers were so worried that they went to her apartment to see if she was there and okay, but they found no sign of her. They also went to Chris's place, but again, there was no sign of Kelly. They called Chris's cell, but it also went straight to voicemail. Their next step was to call Kelly's emergency contact, her mother, who reported Kelly missing to law enforcement. The Milwaukee police responded to the missing person's report immediately. They called Chris's phone several times, but it was still turned off. They left messages for him, asking him to contact them as soon as possible. And a few hours later, he did contact them. When he returned the officer's calls, Chris said he hadn't seen Kelly since the morning before, when she left his apartment. Police then set to work piecing together Kelly's movements. Two days after she was reported missing, on October 14th, police reviewed the security footage from Chris's apartment. 
The footage showed that Kelly arrived at the complex on Thursday, October 10th at 9.50 p.m. Witnesses confirmed that the pair were at a nearby bar called Allium later that night, and Kelly was acting normally. Nothing seemed amiss. She was having drinks and talking to people and seemed to be having a good time. Witnesses said she wasn't acting drunk or impaired. After the bar, Kelly went back to Chris's apartment, something that was caught on the cameras. She and Chris are seen entering the lobby at 2.37 a.m. on what was now October 11th. The footage shows Kelly and Chris walking and talking. She seems happy and upbeat, which is in line with her usual personality. Tragically, that was the last time Kelly was confirmed to be alive. After she entered the elevator with Chris, she wasn't seen again by witnesses or on any cameras. Her social media and bank accounts remained untouched. As the last person seen with Kelly, Chris was immediately a suspect and he was questioned after the security footage had been reviewed. Chris told police during an interview in his apartment that Kelly was not his girlfriend. He described their relationship as friends with benefits. Chris said that the pair would party together a couple of times a week. During the interview, Chris neglected to mention his girlfriend, Beth, or any of the other women that he was dating at the time. Chris told detectives that, on the night of October 10th, he and Kelly had been together in his apartment before they left together to obtain cocaine. They returned to the apartment where they used the drugs together, and Chris mentioned that they may have also smoked marijuana. Then they both went to a club, movements that were confirmed by the security tape and the witnesses. Upon returning to the apartment, Chris said they took more cocaine and Kelly performed oral sex on him before they both passed out on the couch. Chris was interviewed multiple times, and his story varied a little bit each time, which is not uncommon. Chris said that the next morning, he and Kelly woke up around 9 a.m., and Kelly said she was heading out. Chris said he heard the door click, which confirmed to him that she had left. Chris then either fell back asleep for 45 minutes to an hour before he got ready for work, or he got up right away. His account changed. While he usually worked from home, that day he needed to go to the office to collect a document, so he got up, got dressed, and left the apartment. In one interview, he said that when he was most of the way to the office, he realized he didn't need the document after all, and he turned around and went back home. In another interview, he said that he realized when he was almost at the office that he was too hungover to go in, and he hadn't even showered before getting dressed in attire that wasn't office appropriate. Chris said he then logged on and started his workday from home. It's worth noting that during his initial conversation with police, Chris told the detective the route he drove without being asked for it. It's also interesting to note that he made a point of telling detectives about going to his mother's house to throw out summer sports equipment on the evening of October 11th, something that was frowned upon at his complex, forcing him to transport it to his mother's trash. He said that he returned back to his complex that evening. Detectives had scrutinized the security footage and they knew that Kelly had never left Chris's apartment. 
She was seen on camera entering, but never exiting. When this was brought to the attention of Chris, he tried to change the subject and pointed out that Kelly had multiple boyfriends. This attempt at deflection only made police more suspicious. They went back to the footage in an attempt to verify Chris's story. They saw Chris leaving the garage on October 11th at 10.06 a.m., which was around the time he said he left for work, and he returned at 10.22 a.m. He then left at 6.16 p.m., all of which matched his statement. However, contrary to his account, he didn't return home that evening, or even that night. The next time Chris's car is seen on camera was 20 hours later, at 2.40 p.m. on October 12th, when he parked his car in his space and left the vehicle carrying a small white plastic bag, which police believed contained cocaine and marijuana. The suspicion of being in possession of illegal substances gave police cause to get a warrant. Next, detectives reviewed both Kelly and Chris's phone records. Kelly's phone last pinged off a tower near Chris's building on October 11th at 10.08 a.m., two minutes after Chris was seen leaving the garage. Kelly's phone was never turned on again, and it has never been recovered. Chris's phone records showed that his SIM card had been removed on Friday, October 11th at 7.43 p.m., and the card was not replaced until the next day at 2.41 p.m., one minute after he pulled into the parking garage. Because the SIM card had been removed, there was no way to track his movements using the GPS on his phone during that period of time. On October 16th, a warrant was obtained which allowed police to search Chris's apartment to look for drugs. When they found both cocaine and marijuana, they arrested Chris and took him to the station. During an interview, Chris was asked about his relationships, and he said he didn't have a steady girlfriend, and that he dated multiple women. Soon after the interview started, it ended when Chris invoked his right to an attorney. While Chris was in custody, police obtained another warrant that allowed them to search Chris's phone. On the phone, they found disturbing photos and a video from September 22nd. In the video, Kelly is seen bound, blindfolded, and struggling to breathe during an aggressive oral sex act. It is unclear if Kelly was still conscious when the footage was taken. In the video, Chris made statements that made it clear he knew Kelly was struggling to breathe, but he didn't stop. The footage was, unfortunately, taken too long before Kelly's disappearance for police to use it as evidence that Chris could be involved so they continued to hold him on drug charges instead. But investigators found more than drugs at the apartment. During the search, investigators also found that the shower curtain in the guest bathroom was missing, and the bent rail and remnants of the curtain on the rings suggested that it had been ripped off. The bathroom smelled strongly of bleach and was unusually clean. The packaging of cleaning supplies, a Swiffer wet jet mop pad, and a scouring pad was found in his trash. Detectives were fairly certain that Kelly was no longer alive, and she had been removed from the apartment by Chris, wrapped in that shower curtain. A detection dog named Molly 
was called in to search for the scent of human remains around the complex, in the apartment, and in Chris's Audi. While searching the complex, Molly indicated in a dumpster and also on a shovel used by workers to move trash from the dumpster into the compactor in the North Tower's trash disposal area. Chris lived in the North Tower. Molly then searched the 18th floor, Chris's floor, where she detected the scent of human remains both inside and around the trash chute room on this floor. The trash chute is the one that leads to the dumpster that she indicated at earlier. Molly, who is a very good girl, was then led around the floor, sniffing at each door before she indicated strongly at the door of apartment 1801. This is Chris's apartment. Once inside the unit, Molly continued to detect the scent of human remains, both by the entry and in multiple areas in the guest bathroom, including in the tub, the wall next to the tub, and the floor near the sink, and then again in the washer-dryer closet, where a Swiffer wet jet mop was kept. In the main bedroom, Molly indicated on the bed. All of Molly's indications led detectives to one conclusion. Kelly Dwyer died in that apartment, maybe in the bed or in the bathroom, and the evidence was cleaned up. Chris's car was in the police tow garage, and Molly was taken there to see if she could sniff out more evidence, and she did. She indicated in the front driver's side and in the trunk. At this point, the investigation was changed from a missing persons case to a homicide. The Swiffer wet jet mop pad from the trash was tested for DNA, and it returned a mixture of DNA profiles with Kelly and Chris being the likely sources. The trash chute was swabbed, and those swabs were tested for DNA. They also returned a mixed sample, but Chris was the likely main contributor. This suggests that Chris had direct contact with the inside of the chute, leaving behind enough genetic material to establish his full, identifiable DNA profile. The detectives made another disturbing discovery while searching Chris's apartment. When searching his computer, they found child sexual abuse material on an external hard drive and on some CDs. Chris was arrested and charged with 17 counts of possession of child sexual abuse material. Chris denied the material was his, and his mother told CBS that the CSAM likely came from his work in IT. Although Chris wasn't keen on talking to investigators, witnesses were coming forward to have their say. Beth's brother saw the news of Chris's arrest on TV and said that Chris had been dating his sister for three and a half years. Beth was brought in for an interview, and she told police she had dinner plans with Chris the evening of October 11th. That night, Chris spent the night at her condo in Milwaukee, something that had been omitted from his conversations with police. Beth reported that Chris did not show up at her home when he was expected and that he was late that Friday evening. She said that she tried to reach him by phone and text but got no response, and that his phone went straight to voicemail as if it was off, which she said was extremely odd. When Chris finally did arrive at her apartment around 8 p.m., he let himself in, which he didn't usually do, and he was complaining that his SIM card wasn't working and he hadn't been getting any messages. Chris told her that he got a new SIM card on the way to her apartment, 
and she saw him either remove or replace his SIM card. Beth reported that Chris was anxious that evening, and that night he was restless and sweating as he slept. He sweated so much that she had to change the sheets. In the morning, Chris blamed the comforter for making him too hot and left it at that. Beth mentioned that they didn't have sex, and in fact, Chris struggled to achieve and maintain an erection, so the two rarely had intercourse. The morning of the 12th, Beth said Chris got up around 7 a.m. and left 30 minutes later to run errands and go to work. On the night of the 12th, Beth reported that Chris was back at her place and they went for brunch the morning of the 13th. During this meal, Chris told Beth that he was thinking of moving and relocating out west. Beth was shocked when he said this, as she had recently turned down an offer to move west because she wanted to stay with Chris, who said he didn't want to relocate. That night, Beth left for a business trip and she never saw Chris again. She did hear from him one last time, though. Chris managed to get a message to Beth via his mother's phone, which read, Hey, baby, 95% of what you're hearing in the news is false. There's no other woman in my life. All I've been doing is thinking about you, trying to get out of here. I know you're upset. Someday, I hope you'll give me a chance to explain it to you. Chris's mother was interviewed, and she was asked to show police the sporting items that Chris had dropped off to her on October 11th. She refused. She then avoided the police phone calls and investigators were not able to speak with her again. While police were talking to Beth, they asked about the contents of Chris's apartment and she mentioned a large golf travel bag that had been laying around in the living room in front of the TV for weeks. Beth said the bag was about five feet long and over two feet wide. Police thought that five foot seven tall Kelly would have fit inside of that bag. Notably, the golf bag was also missing during the search of the apartment, but the clubs were left behind. Also missing from the home were the shower curtain, bath mat, and towels in the guest bathroom. Although Chris was not seen leaving his apartment with the golf bag, it was possible that he got lucky and avoided the cameras. There was a shot of his car with what looked like a golf bag in the trunk. Beth was able to shed some light on Chris's lifestyle. She said that he was messy and he had a housekeeper to clean and pick up around the apartment. When the housekeeper was interviewed, she was shown a photo of the cleaning product wrappers in the trash can. She said she had never seen them before and that she had not used those products. So, listeners, remember how Chris's SIM card had been removed, leaving his location for the day of October 12th untraceable? Well, when police got access to his bank records, they were able to start filling in some of the blanks. They found out that Chris had traveled toward Madison, driving around 80 miles before he purchased cheese at the Mouse House Cheese House in Windsor, just outside of Madison, and he paid with cash. When asked about the seemingly random trip, Chris claimed he was getting the cheese for Beth's parents, who were expected to stay in his spare bedroom the following weekend. Investigators, on the other hand, they thought the real reason for the trip was to find a location to dump Kelly's body. They believed that Chris was either scouting the area for a location, or he was going to a location that he had already chosen. 
His bank record showed he purchased a pair of New Balance tennis shoes and a lemonade in Sports Authority in Delafield, Wisconsin. Detectives inferred that Chris needed to replace his shoes so he could discard the ones he was wearing when he dumped Kelly's body so he couldn't be placed at the scene. During the trip from the cheese store to the sports store, there were 47 minutes of time unaccounted for, which is plenty of time for Chris to find a secluded spot and dump Kelly's body. However, this also left a large search area, and finding the exact spot was like looking for a needle in a haystack. They needed to narrow the search area down if they were to have any hope of finding Kelly Dwyer. By October 25th, police were sure they knew what had happened, but Kelly's family were holding on to hope. Kelly's father pleaded for information and for Kelly to return safely to her family. The next day, police searched the landfill where the trash from Chris's apartment was taken while volunteers searched the neighborhood surrounding the complex. Sadly, neither search yielded any new evidence. By early November, Chris was out on bail pending his trial on the drug and child sexual abuse material charges. According to Milwaukee Magazine, TRC Global, the company that his mother ran, were the ones that paid his $250,000 bail. After all of this investigating, they still didn't have any concrete evidence to charge Chris with murder. They only had their suspicions and circumstantial evidence. Sure, they strongly suspected that Chris had killed Kelly, wrapped her in a shower curtain, put her in the golf bag, and then removed her from the apartment without attracting attention before dumping her body somewhere between Madison and Milwaukee. He then dumped the golf bag and claimed he had taken it to his mother's to be disposed of as part of a clear out, but they couldn't prove any of this, at least not yet. A year later, in November of 2014, Chris was convicted on all but one of the CSAM charges. The following month, he pleaded guilty to the drug charges. In total, he was sentenced to 19 years in prison. With Chris behind bars for the better part of two decades, police continued to search for the evidence they needed to charge him with Kelly's murder. And now, we're back to the beginning, where on May 1st, 2015, Kelly's body was recovered. A man walking along a rural road in Jefferson County, Wisconsin, which is located between Milwaukee and Madison. He thought he saw an animal leg bone around 20 feet away from the road, out near the tree line. As he got closer, he realized the bone was too long to be a deer bone. And as he surveyed the ground, he saw what he knew was a human skull. The man went to inform a neighbor, who called 911. Kelly's remains were skeletonized, and she was identified via dental records. Her body was found facing the ground and her body had been contorted, suggesting she was contained in something small shortly after her death, and rigor mortis had set in while she was contained. The Milwaukee County Medical Examiner later confirmed that if Kelly's body was still in rigor mortis at the time the body was deposited at the location, the body would have remained in that position as it decomposed if the remains were left, for the most part, undisturbed. It's likely that the body was rolled down the incline from the side of the road and it came to rest hidden in the tree line. 
The location where Kelly was found was along a rural dead-end road near an I-94 exit. It was 38 miles from Chris's apartment and 12 miles from the store where he'd bought new shoes and lemonade. Kelly's remains were the only things found at that location. No clothing, shower curtain, towels, or golf bag were recovered. Due to the advanced decomposition, a specific cause and manner of death could not be determined, despite an autopsy and an anthropological examination. It was discovered that Kelly's hyoid bone was missing, which could indicate that she was strangled. However, there were no other injuries to her bones or her skull. They were able to determine that bleeding was not the cause of death. With this information, and that gained from the police investigation, it was reasonable to infer that strangulation, suffocation, or asphyxia likely caused Kelly's death. This tracked with the police's line of thinking after viewing the photos and video on Chris's phone of Kelly struggling to breathe during an aggressive oral sex act. Other women who had similar experiences with Chris had also come forward and said that they had experienced trouble breathing and feared for their safety during the sex acts. By May of 2018, police felt they had a strong case and they charged Chris with first degree reckless homicide, hiding a corpse, and strangulation and suffocation. If found guilty, he could be sentenced to an additional 60 years in prison. The trial started in September of 2018. The prosecution provided the jury with all the information that we have already covered in this episode and stated that between 2.37 a.m. and 10.06 a.m., Chris caused Kelly's death, probably on his bed, and possibly as the result of an intentional, sexually motivated homicidal act, or during the course of an extremely reckless sexual asphyxia scenario taken too far. Chris did not seek medical help for Kelly during this time, indicating he had a guilty conscience and a complete disregard for her life. Once she was dead, Chris moved Kelly's body to the guest bathroom where he may have tried to wash her to remove evidence. This would explain the missing towels and the multiple indications from the cadaver dog, Molly, in the guest bathroom. He then either wrapped Kelly in the shower curtain or used it as a tarp while he figured out his next move. The prosecution said that the towels and shower curtain were later put down the trash chute, again explaining Molly's detection in that area. Chris then stuffed Kelly's body into the golf bag and used it to remove Kelly from the apartment and into his car. He added other sports equipment to his car to make his story to police more believable. He then left the complex to drop off the sports equipment at his mother's house, despite being late for his dinner with Beth. While he was with Beth, the golf bag and Kelly's body were in the trunk of his vehicle. The next morning, he drove to Windsor, bought the cheese as a cover story, and found a secluded spot to dump Kelly's remains hoping that the location would mean she would never be found. He then made his way to the sports store and returned home, reinserting his SIM card and finding masses of texts and missed calls from people who were concerned about Kelly. The defense, however, said that Chris was not involved with Kelly's death. They pointed out that the prosecution said it would be impossible for Kelly to leave the apartment unseen by the security cameras but said that Chris managed to leave with the golf bag without being seen. 
The defense continued, agreeing that Kelly had met with foul play. However, they blamed the other men that she was dating. They disputed Molly's human remains detection because it was not filmed, and there was no lasting evidence of her indicating in the apartment, the trash chute, or the car. The defense then presented a witness who said they saw Kelly alive after she was reported missing. The witness said that Kelly was in a car with another person, and that person was wearing a Santa hat and a beard. Police didn't follow this lead because they thought the witness was mistaken, and the defense said that not following the lead was an error. During the trial, the jury was taken to both Chris's apartment and the location where Kelly's remains were recovered. At the conclusion of the 10-day trial, the jury found Chris guilty on all charges. In December, at his sentencing hearing, Kelly's family read victim impact statements, speaking of the Kelly they knew, the one with infectious energy, the girl who loved and cared for people and could see the good in anyone. Her mom said, I am so filled with rage when I think about how alone she was and there was no one there to comfort her. That image haunts me every day. At this hearing, the defense now argued that Kelly's death was an accident that occurred during the course of a consensual relationship. However, the prosecution pointed out that Chris never showed any remorse or accountability. They asked the judge to sentence Chris to 22 years. During the sentencing hearing, Chris did not speak, nor did he show any emotion. He occasionally shook his head in disagreement with statements, but that was it. The judge sentenced Chris to 31 years in prison, followed by 14 years supervised release to be served consecutively with his initial 19-year sentence. The judge told Chris, What started out being consensual at one time became an utter disregard for human life. You ended up choking the life out of the victim for your own self-gratification. Chris has appealed his sentence many times, and each of these appeals were unsuccessful. Today, he is incarcerated in the Green Bay Correctional Institution in Milwaukee. He will not be released until 2065, when he's 90 years old. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Be safe.